everybody. We're here with our podcast, EatScripture.com, and today we're going to cover, uh, we're going to start in Judges 6, and we're going to talk about Gideon. And we had class this morning, and we rushed through the first part, so some of this will be repeat, and there may be a few things that we throw in that we didn't get to talk about this morning, and um, we'll just go from there. It'll be repeat for those who are in class anyway, since not everybody is with us in class, I know, who listens to this. So some of you guys will get all fresh stuff. Um, but even those who get repeat, there was just a lot in here, like Gina said, that we didn't get to cover. And so we'll hit on a few of those things as we go through. The Gideon story is what we're looking at in particular. So Judges 6 through 8 is the story of Gideon. And so we are going to take a closer look at this. Um, as we get started in chapter 6, verse 1, we immediately see that we've seen these words before. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If we were to look back at chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 7, we're going to see the same words again. Um, the people just have this cycle of continuing to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They kind of do well for a little bit after they get rescued, but then they wind up back in their old ways. And uh, so they've done that again. And the Lord is giving them into the hand of Midian in this case. The Lord is giving them into the hand of Midian. We've seen them oppressed by other people. This time it happens to be Midian. Um, so the Lord raised up Midian. He gives them into their yeah, hand who are the oppressed. Well, the Midianites are actually distant cousins of the Israelites. Um, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 25, we would find that Abraham, when he married again in his life to a lady named Keturah, that they had a son named Midian. And he was the forefather of the Midianites. And so the Midianites are distant relatives of the Israelites. And they, this happens a lot, where the Israelites will come into some real contention with their, with their relatives. It happens with the Ishmaelites in Scripture, right. the Edomites in Scripture. Uh, it happens with the Ammonites and the Moabites, as we've already seen. Uh, and so this is not unusual, this kind of thing. So God has raised up the Midianites, and now they, too, are going to have struggles in relationship with their distant cousins, um, the Israelites. And so here we are, dropped into the middle of this scene. God is bringing judgment on his people for not for doing evil in his sight. Uh -huh. So They've been under their oppressive hand for seven years. Mm -hmm. yep. So seven, a very important number, a complete number. Yeah. Um, and yep. when they get to the eighth day, that's... Uh, symbolizing a new week, a new creation starting. Yep. So they will be delivered on the eighth year. Yeah. Year, so. Yeah, that would be the interesting part. What's not said here is the implication of the eight. Uh, eight is known among Jews as being a number for new creation, a new thing that God is doing. Seven is complete, so eight starts the newness of the new cycle. So that's what we're getting here is a new beginning, a new start for Israel as they get rescued. They're going to get rescued again. Um, we might also mention that along with the Midianites, the Amalekites are present. Chapter 6, verse 3. These are the same people who were joining with the Ammonites whenever we saw back with, uh, I think it was, what, Ehud. Deborah? And, oh, yeah. No, Ehud. it was. Is that right? 
What was it? Um, the Amalekites were also oppressing, yes, the people with the with the Ammonites, Ammonites in Ehud in chapter 3, verse 13. It was Ammonites and Amalekites uh, that were oppressing them in chapter 3, verse 13. And so, so the Amalekites were present there. The Amalekites just continue to be a thorn no matter what. And really, the Amalekites... They were the ones that were the first ones to come mm-hmm. around and um, come against Israel. Come against them when they came into the land. So yep. when they crossed over the um, Red Sea, so yep. they've they, always been enemies. Yes, always been enemies, and, and they will continue to be. And we don't really ever see a good Amalekite, even as an individual in Scripture. These people just always, always uh, are in a bad Mm -hmm. way coming against, either as individuals or as group, coming against Israel. So, not a good sign to see them hanging around. So, as we get started in this, and the people are are being oppressed, and the people cry out in verse 6, the first thing God does in verses 7 through 10 is to send a prophet to the people to talk to them. Were you going to say something about well, that? Well, I was just going to say that I think that first, those first six verses are really interesting because mm-hmm. they talk about how bad the oppression is and that mm-hmm. they're even hiding in caves. Oh, yes. And right. uh, strongholds. Mm-hmm. And that every year the Midianites come in and wipe out all their crops. Yes. And take away all their livelihood. Mm-hmm. So they are in a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. So, yes, then we get to them crying out. They've finally realized their need for God, mm-hmm. and they cry out. And this time, God doesn't save them immediately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you've opened up that door there. Yeah, we don't want to skip over that. You're right. Chapter 6, verse 2, they're digging holes in the ground to try and hide from uh, all these people who are coming in, trying to take everything they grow, all their crops, all their stuff. I mean, they kind of show up every year and lay out all over the land and take everything that the Israelites have and How discouraging would that be? You work hard for your crop every year thinking, okay, maybe this year. And then the Midianites swoop in like locusts. And yep. Yep. Which is exactly there. the words that's used in verse 5. Mm-hmm. They come up like locusts, cover the ground, and they eat and take everything that the Israelites have. So people cry out to the Lord in verse 6. And the Lord sends them a prophet. And then this prophet tells them, again, if they haven't heard it before, but they're surely starting to listen by now, just exactly why it is that they are under the oppression they're under. Verse Mm -hmm. 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites who live in the land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Yeah. Reminds him who he is and what he's already done for him. And then just this, this that is last why sentence, you're suffering. but yep. you haven't obeyed my voice. Yep. You didn't do what I told you to do. They've obviously started fearing other gods, mm-hmm. which is going to come up here right away as we get into the Gideon story. So we go straight from that point of the prophet speaking, telling the people why all this is happening to them into the, the inner, our introduction to this man that we haven't heard of before, Gideon, 
who is just trying to get by, it sounds like, just trying to keep enough food on the table to get by. So it says in verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophra, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So they got a little bit of food. They can scrounge together a little bit to survive. But even that, they have to do their threshing in the wine press. That's not convenient. Wine press is for making wine. But in this case, it's a hole in the ground that's used to hide um, their wheat while they're threshing it because if they don't hide what they have, it'll be taken. So it's not like they have a lot, and the little that they do have, they have to keep for themselves at all costs. And of course, I want to throw in here that it's really interesting that it is a threshing floor. Mm -hmm. It's a wine press that's being used as a threshing floor, mm -hmm. but a uh, threshing floor in Scripture is big theme, always uh, God's judgment mm -hmm. where you're dividing the wheat from the chaff. Yep. And um, yep. even... I'll just throw this in, but even the um, temple mm -hmm. is built on a threshing floor. Mm -hmm. So there's, when you see that in scripture, pay attention. There's important things that happen on threshing floors. Yes. Uh, yes. Ruth meets Ruth and Boaz. Yes, that's uh, right. Have their. That's when they decide. Their relationship yeah. <laughs> is really going to move forward. So is when it does. It's on a threshing floor. It's but like that's that's all for a together. reason, and we won't yeah. go into all of that right now. But when it's on a threshing floor, it's it's there's a reason for that. And so I think here, the fact that he's on a he's mm -hmm. on a threshing floor mm -hmm. when God comes to him, yeah, or when the angel of the Lord. We're going to talk about that. But. Yeah, threshing floors though they are, they're tied tied to God's work in Jesus. Um, and definitely mm -hmm. John the Baptist ties it very clearly to the work of Jesus when he talks about um, what God is going to do when he sends his Messiah and so forth. We find that in Mark chapter 1. We find it in Luke chapter 3. Uh, it is just very major theme. Um, and like Gina said, we could go to the very last chapter in Second Samuel and find that the temple is actually built on a threshing floor. That's not by chance. That's because coming before God in the temple, that's where hearts are separated. That's where the good hearts are separated from the bad hearts. You can't be in the presence of God and there not be threshing taking place. Mm -hmm. The wheat will be separated from the chaff in the presence of God. That's what that is. So continually throughout scripture, we see that used. So I find that interesting too, because there's judgment implicated here, mm -hmm. but we've also had in our last two several stories, mm -hmm. but you know, the two edged sword, we talked about that being the word and it divides, yeah, it it, divides. it's what lays us bare before mm -hmm. him, it's judgment. And then, um, yep. with Deborah and the heart. Barack, mm -hmm. there was, um, Yes, and Deborah and Barak, of course, it was it was uh, Sisera being judged. Um, there was this, but there was this idea. Of course, God was bringing judgment through His word against those who were opposed to Him, um, and 
so we had the big theme of judgment there, certainly. Um, and the word had, it had everything to do with the fact that the word was coming in and the word was doing the things to expose whose were, whose hearts were really his and whose weren't. And we find out right. that JL was really his, even though she was a foreigner, obviously. Um, and, but then obviously too, Cicero was not, um, Cicero was judged by her. Um, but we saw all of that too, all of these stories are having to do with God coming in with a hand of judgment. Right. And so God's coming in with hence a hand judges. of judgment here. Yes, hits <laughs> judges, exactly. But I just wanted to point that out, that that's... Yes. Here in the, almost every story we're going to find an element of that in maybe small ways or maybe big ways, but mm-hmm. it's going to be there. So. And Gideon is our Savior here. Mm-hmm. Gideon is our upcoming Messiah. That's what he... He's being anointed by God, and that's what Messiah means, anointed one, in... Jewish understanding that's what the anointed one is he's the Messiah that's all the name Messiah means to be anointed and so he is going to be anointed by God to bring judgment on Israel's enemies and so God's going to use him that way so he's a he's a Messiah figure and he's found in a threshing floor surprise surprise God's going to use him to bring judgment he's in a threshing floor all this stuff plays together And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It says in verse 12, that's how he addresses Gideon right off the bat. Even though Gideon is hiding. (laughs) Exactly. And obviously not a man of valor. I mean, he answers with, you know, later on Mm -hmm. down in the passage, we'll see him say even, I'm the least of, you know, from the the very least, I'm not a man of valor. And and I don't even know, I don't know. Where is this Lord Mm -hmm. who's supposed to have delivered us? So I think right here, I love this part because I think the angel of the Lord, the Lord, is telling Gideon who he sees Gideon to be. Yeah. And who he will be. Yes. This is what prophets do. Yeah. He's he's telling him who he really is. Mm -hmm. You're a man, a mighty man of valor. Mm Mm-hmm. But Gideon doesn't know that yet. He doesn't see himself that way. But that's certainly the way God sees him. Right. And I think he does that with all of us. He yeah. sees He sees things in us that we don't see, mm-hmm. and he calls us to them to be that. Yes, exactly so right. I'm sure this was a shocking thing for Gideon. He was like, what? It had to be, right? I'm not a man of valor. Yeah. He's not out you know, charging enemy lines or anything. He's not fighting on horseback or anything like that. Yeah, that's not his role. He's just hiding inside a wine press, sifting some wheat so that maybe they can get another loaf of bread out of it. Right. Um, and But sure enough, angel of the Lord addresses him as mighty man of valor. Um, so like Gina said, just seeing in him what he already, already seeing in him what he doesn't see in himself. And Gideon said to him, please... My Lord, if the Lord, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So, again, really interesting. He knows about previous things that the Lord has done for his people. So he's not unaware. He's heard about him. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere along the line, he's heard the stories. So he's been taught on some level about Yahweh. Probably his family still knows Yahweh, isn't trying to shirk Yahweh, isn't trying to do anything bad to Yahweh. 
but we're going to find out that they are definitely idol worshipers. They're definitely already putting stock in Baal and Asherah and what they can do for them. Uh, and so Gideon is right along the lines in a family like this doing things like this. But he's heard of Yahweh. He knows what Yahweh does. He's wondering if Yahweh might do something like that again. But I, hear, I hear this all the time from people who've grown up in church or, mm-hmm. you know, they just, well, they're going through struggles. Maybe I have probably even said this. Mm-hmm. You're going through struggles, but where is God? Mm-hmm. I know he did these great things for those people. Mm-hmm. And I read about what he did for the Egyptians and what he did for the, I mean, for the Israelites in Egypt. Yeah. And I know what he did for, you know, along the way with Moses and mm-hmm. Abraham. And I know those stories because I went to VBS in the summers. Mm-hmm. But where is he now? Yeah. Where is he when I'm hurting? And where is he when... Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with things. Yeah. I don't see him. And I think that's what Gideon's saying here. Yeah. But like you're saying, so many, much of the time when we do that, we are putting our trust in what we can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in... Or in the gods, gods of money, gods the, of success. Because yes. Baal and Asherah, yeah. that's seem basically like, what like they are. there's a good a chance of getting help from them as there is of Yahweh <laughs> right now. It's what it seems like to my eye. Um, as yeah, opposed we can talk to, about that in a minute, but yeah. I just, yeah. I think that definitely this is not that far away from where we are. Right. Absolutely. I think it's right on top of where we are, too. So we can see in verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Now this is an interesting verse because... That whole angel of the Lord idea that we're seeing come out here comes out in lots of parts of the Old Testament where this angel of the Lord, yes, he's a angel slash messenger of Yahweh, and yet he talks also like he is Yahweh. Not just him talking, but like the beginning of verse 14, the Lord turned to him. So it sounds like this angel of the Lord, not just sounds like, but it's making out that this this being, this person who's standing before Gideon, who's turning to Gideon, is the Lord himself. And then he speaks like it when he says, do not I send you. And, and he's going to continue to speak like it. Let's keep reading. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord, it says, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me again the sign that is you who speak with me. That it is, in other words, the Lord who speaks with me. That's what Gideon is trying to figure out. Who am I talking to? Why is he telling me this? How can he know this? So Gideon wants to make sure that it's very much Yahweh who's actually talking to him. What he sees is a person standing before him. And then it says, please do not depart from here until I come and bring to you my present and set it before you, my offering. And he said, in other words, and the man, the Lord said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, an ephah being a lot of flour, and the meat he put in front in, in 
a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them and the angel of God said to him now we're back to this angel of God language the angel of God said to him take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them and he did so and then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of Yahweh, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now what Gideon is saying is, I'm scared to death. I saw God's face. I'm about to die. We know that because the next verse, the Lord said to him, he hears so hum, somehow he's understanding this voice, hearing this voice of Yahweh, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. So he immediately gets this encouragement from God that he's not going to die even though he saw the Lord's face. And then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say, here we have a theology in the Old Testament where the Lord is both present in his transcendent sense above all things watching all things covering all things and yet at the same time it seems very present right here is very present right here next to Gideon standing here as a man having a conversation with him and it, if it only happened here that would be one thing but it happens yeah. so many places in the Old Testament we it's really a thing and we just see it a lot yeah theme, the angel of the Lord yeah Exactly. And so. so whenever this angel of the Lord appears, he carries very much this sense of being Yahweh himself, even talks like Yahweh himself. All the way back, we see this back in Genesis 22, for instance. We see it in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, whenever the Lord is talking to Samuel. We have all this kind of language used where God seems to be both transcendent and above in heaven at the same time as being standing beside, as he's standing beside in some kind of human form, one of these people that he's talking to on earth. It was these kinds of things that led the rabbis uh, even before Christ. I say the rabbis like they all think the same thoughts. They don't. There was a diversity among them. But there was a rabbinical line of thought even before Christ that the Lord could be both in heaven above, transcendent above all, and at the same time be in the form of a person on earth. It was called the two powers theology, and it's uh, highlighted for those who like to look at that kind of thing, highlighted specifically um, and very well in the unseen realm by Michael Heiser, and also uh, then he references other references that go even deeper than he does, but I would encourage you to look at that if you want to see how it was even brought up before Jesus ever set foot on the earth. So that really kind of leads to the idea that once Jesus did set foot on the earth, once his disciples were talking about him being God and walking around as a person, they already mm -hmm. had some room to build that understanding from the scriptures themselves. They could already put those pieces together for people and say, hey, this isn't out of line. What we're saying about Jesus being God isn't out of line. We all know that it's already that's already an understanding about the scriptures is that God can be in these forms at one time and be very much conversing with us as a human being while he's also in heaven overseeing all things. 
So, so um, I, I went on a long time about that. Babe, you might want to uh, <laughs> bring okay. up something else in uh, there. Obviously, you know, Gideon didn't know that's who he was talking to. Right. He came to that realization later. But, um, I mean, I even think if he had known, he wouldn't have said, hey, wait here while I go get a present, mm-hmm. <laughs> an offering. Right. Like, um, God is so good to just say, okay, I'll stay here till you get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then this whole offering, I just, a couple of things about that, just that they're, first of all, they didn't have anything. I mean, yeah. we talked about how they've been being just... Pillaged. Yeah, pillaged kind of. by the Midianites. And so uh, they had very little. They were worried about starving. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. here he is going and fixing this meal. So there was some kind of faith he had here mm-hmm. to do that. And right. what has taken place here is basically a peace offering. Mm-hmm. And we'd have to go back and look at all the stuff in Leviticus. I believe it's in Leviticus about where all the different offerings. But the peace offering. Um, and it basically, it's communing with God. It's, uh, we're going to be okay because God and I are going to sit down and have a meal. And if you can sit down and have a meal with God, mm-hmm. then you're okay. Yeah. There's peace. Yeah. And so... Um, Basically, that's what's happening here, and actually the Passover is a form of that peace offering, the peace. Um, and so I think that's probably partly why we get these references, but the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not fear, you shall not die. I'm sorry, I was having trouble finding that. And then um, Gideon building the altar there and calling it the Lord is peace. Yes. Because this was a peace offering. They've had a meal together. They've communed together here. And so this is really important, I think, even in the timing of the whole story. Maybe we can talk about that later. But um, he's been fearful. God has told him who who he is. Mm -hmm. And he's laid out that he's not, he's from the least of the least. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's, he, he can't do this. And God has given him a task. They've, they've had this com- communion together. And then God is giving him this next thing to do. Mm-hmm. And he's... Um, so now he's got this task. Yes, absolutely. That God is asking him to go take down the altars to Baal and Asherah. Yep, his first task. And that was, that was actually the Israelites' first task to do when they came into the land. Right, exactly. Was to knock down all these altars. Rid it of foreign gods, um, foreign god worship, yeah. Yes, and so he's not asking him to do anything he hasn't already asked them all to do. Yes. But he's giving him a specific task here in this town. Yes, absolutely. Um, Baal, again, means my master or my husband. It can mean either one. Um, And then Asherah more literally means happiness. So the kind of the goddess of happiness, that's what we're looking at here. Um, and so think about worshiping. It's no wonder these are the concepts that, that people would have about their gods and what they expected their gods to bring to them. And Baal was very much a, a god of fertility. So they're expecting him to make their land fertile, keep their land fertile, keep them being able Which to grow really, good crops. In our day, that would be like 
the god of the stock market. Right. Or exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was whether or not you were poor, super prosperity. poor, or had a little bit of yeah extra had to do with whether whether your crops grew or not. Yeah, whether they grew well or not. So yeah, it's just prosperity. Like Gina said, you Baal would be the god of the modern day American stock market, so to speak. Yeah. So. So you can certainly hear all that coming. It's the same things we, the we deal with. Are the prosperous and happy. Yep, exactly. Hmm, sounds huh. a little familiar. Very familiar, <laughs> very familiar. Um, so, and Asherah is the female consort of Baal, Baal. So they are connected in so many ways. Uh, when you think about that ancient way of understanding gods and goddesses, then you naturally put Baal and Asherah together. So he's called to pull down these altar and this altar and Asherah pole that are in, you know, his hometown, if you will, his family's place where they live. It's very close to there anyway, and uh, and he's called to pull it down. He's scared to do it, but he's going to do it. But we're told in verse 27 he's just going to do it at night. Now, interesting enough, Gideon's name means feller. As in somebody who fells trees, who fells things. Um, we might even say lumberjack, more colloquial way of saying it might be lumberjack. He's going to fell trees, pull things down. That's exactly what he's going to do. That's what God has called him to do, is to live up to his name. So that's exactly what's going to happen. He does do it, even though he's afraid to do it. But he takes some men. He does it at night. I'm sure those men weren't completely happy about the idea, but they were going along with it because Gideon said to, he has enough authority to, to call him to do this. Uh, the next day, when the men of town find out they are not, he does at it at night because happy. he's afraid. Yep, he's afraid. He's Verse still afraid. Twenty-seven. But he is doing what God asked him to do. Yep, exactly. So it says in verse twenty-eight. When the men of town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asherah beside it was cut down, felled, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the altar of Asherah beside it. Joash said to all who stood beside, uh, against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. In other words, he's saying, Baal's the one who can contend for Baal. My goodness, if he's a god, surely he can do something. If somebody tears down his altars, why don't we let him take care of himself? Um, now, again... Joash has been apparently a Baal worshiper too, but he does love his son very much, and the idea of his son being lynched doesn't make him feel good. So he's going to trust in his son right now. Comes to his son's defense, and and says, "Let any you know you guys leave him alone. Let Baal be the one who gets on to him, who comes after him. If Baal wants to do something about it, surely if Baal is a god, you won't have to take up for him." And so the other guys in town kind of think, well, I guess I guess that sounds logical. Seems like that would be appropriate then. So whatever pull he has, Joash has, they're willing to listen. And they don't go after Gideon. And instead, they start referring to him as Jerubbaal. In other words, a contender of Baal. 
So whether or not you can say that's coming from the Baal side or his side, because you could easily translate the word two ways. One who contends with Baal or Baal contends with him. Um, the he's one Baal, Baal contends with. Either way, yes, he's a Baal fighter. Either way, he's a Baal fighter. Uh, and so, so that's what they start referring to him as, and that kind of becomes a little moniker that he wears seemingly rather proudly, um, as we'll hear it again before we're done. So kind of cool how this works out for him and it works out well for him because he needs that right now god has Mm -hmm. has certainly made things work out he has done what god said god has glorified himself through the process and now god has more for him to do bigger bites for him to bite off um so in verse 33, he says, it says, Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east came together and crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So four tribes have come together to fight against these Midianites and Amalekites who are once again coming into the land to take all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and the best part about that is that when it talks about the spirit of the Lord clothing Gideon, I feel like that's just, that's a big moment. We'll see in some of the others mm-hmm. how the spirit came upon these judges and yeah. Uh, yeah. took over, but... I mean, as Cecil said this morning, the Spirit is not indwelling right. in these people before Jesus right. uh, dies. But he does come upon people and mm-hmm. clothe them. Yes. And, um, and perform miraculous yes. works through them. Exactly. Them. Yeah. And so it's kind of a neat picture. And then him sounding the trumpet to call everybody to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had that with. Right, we are that had, the um, end. Yeah. So another, just, I, I mean, I think about Jesus when I hear these things. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus is going to, it talks about him at the sound of the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're supposed to, when we hear that about Jesus, we're supposed to go back to these stories. And yeah. he's calling them to follow him. Right. And so, and this isn't the last time we're going to hear trumpets either. We'll keep going, but they're, they're going to become mm-hmm. part of our ongoing yeah, they're story. Part of story. Yeah. So Gideon says to God in verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did on that night, and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Wow. So God just comes and meets Gideon right where he is here. The very things that he asks, if you please don't be angry with me, I just want to ask if you will do this. Um, Tim Keller has described this as being kind of a, uh, he described it with the words big picture. This is what God wants to do through Gideon in all of Israel. 
is to save Israel, is to bring his people hope through this great victory that he's going to give them. Gideon wants to be on board completely with what God's doing, and he doesn't want to misread it, and he wants to make sure he's going down a path that honors God and does what God calls for and knows that God is with him in it. Is there a sense of a lack of faith? In the sense that we would all have some real moments of soul searching, if we were going to have to jump into something like this, then I would say yes. But this isn't like, uh, I'm going to have to go with Tim here, this isn't like, um, you know, asking God, which job should I take? I'll, you know, I'll flip a coin and if it lands on heads, I'll know you want me to take this one. And if it lands on tails, I'll want, you'll want me to take that one. You know, it's not something so simple. So even dare I say, you know, I don't want to say selfish per se. You don't have to be selfish of heart to ask such a thing. But sometimes no, we are. That's, because I think we do, we do ask that. though those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we want to hear from God. One thing that Cecil said this morning in class was, um, we do have the indwelling of the Spirit. Yes. So we do ask God to let us know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when yes. we're if we're going down the right path. And I do think it has a lot to do with sincerity of heart when you're yes. asking. Yes. God knows how to meet you where you are. And I think that God does still give signs in the world of what he's doing. Now, we do, I want to stress again exactly what Cecil said, like you said. We have the Spirit now. We're in communion with God. We have a, we have a direct line with God that was never, ever had before Jesus. And if we are in really good communication with God like we should be and like we're, we should, we're learning to be better and better all the time, then we will have a pretty strong sense of things. Even when we're in rougher situations, harder to figure out, we'll at least have a stronger sense of, you know, I really feel like God is, is pulling me this way, pulling me that way. I'm not saying we'll always be right. Certainly nobody's always right. Even your closest to God can be thrown a curveball. Um, and certainly is, but, but if we are staying in tune with the spirit, you know, Paul talks about walking by the spirit and mm -hmm. staying in connection with the spirit and um, being led by the spirit. Uh, there is this sense in which we walk close to him and we have a basic understanding of, mm -hmm. of what he's doing around us and how to pour ourselves into that and what it is that we're, you know, where it would be best for us to serve at certain times. That's generally speaking, I think, uh, a way that we're supposed to be able to work. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I think I don't. I don't see this. I do see it as a lack of faith, but I think that it's a lack of faith we all have. Mm -hmm. I just think he's. This is a big task. Mm -hmm. It's got, and he is fearful. We know this, mm -hmm. and we've talked about how I think I don't know if we've said it on this podcast, but how. Fear is one of the big themes in this story. Yeah. It's used, that word for fear is used eight times in Judges, but yes. six of those times are in this story. Yes, chapter so six through eight. Yep. That's, you know, we're fearful. Gideon is fearful here in this story, and sometimes we are <laughs> too. Yeah. But, but I think the story is showing us, but God is faithful. Yeah. And he is going to, he keeps having patience with Gideon and leading him in, in a way that will make him into the man of valor that he 
is intended to be. And so I love here, I mean, this is the only story I ever remembered about Gideon before was there was something about some fleece and it getting wet and with some dew. And yeah. I, we must have had that story in, you know, kids' Bible <laughs> school. Yeah. And then we don't talk about judges much when we get older, which is weird. But um, so I never understood this. But when I read it, I don't hear judgment from God. I don't hear him getting upset with you. In fact, he says, oh, don't get angry. But it's him worried about God getting angry. Mm -hmm. God has given no indication of being angry. Right. Um, so I just, I feel like God is being so patient mm -hmm. with Gideon through this process. And it's a beautiful picture of how he is with us too. Yeah. And he's patient with us growing in our faith. Yes. And so, however... This seems like a weird thing to me. Sure. But it meant something to Gideon, and yes. so it meant something to God. Yes. And it, he helped him with it. Absolutely. There you are, I think. That's what we're really talking about, the sincerity of Gideon. It means something. It's not just about, hey, i got to roll the dice, make sure I'm going the right way. <laughs> um, see where if the dice land on, on 1 through 6, then I'll know God wants me to do this, but if they add up 7 through 12, I'll know God wants me to do that. It's not like that. And we can't turn our life with God into that. If we try to play God that way, He will not respond. He is not a God of our our games and our puppetry and that kind of thing. He is not going to respond. But if our hearts are sincere and we truly are trying to stay on task with where He is, He will find ways to meet us here that will are. be significant to us. That yeah. will really speak to us, and to, and so God loves us that much. I want. I really want that to, to be driven home. Yeah. So it really is cool that he in every part of this whole story, you just see God meeting Gideon right where he is. Mm -hmm. Now, as we continue on into chapter seven, and you might want to read to yourself uh, this chapter even before we launch into it here, but that's up to you guys. But as we go into it, what we're seeing is that. Gideon, Jerubal, as he's introduced again in 7.1, is now taking these men that have come to his side and they are getting ready to go into battle. But one of the first things that happen even before they go is that in verse 2 of chapter 7, we are told by the Lord that the people with, with Gideon are too many for God to give the Midianites into their hand. Not what you might normally hear. You mean too few, God? But no, God means there are too many for me to do that. I need to get rid of some of these people before I give the many nights into their hand. It says, lest or because Israel will boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. If I give them to this many, then this many will somehow make it look like, well, it was really hard. It was really tough on us, but we did it. And God can't have them thinking that. They can't be allowed to think that it had anything to do with them. So we're going to have to get rid of a bunch of these people. It's and really the, human nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we think God is going, we pray that God will, I don't know, accomplish some great task for us. Mm -hmm. But then if we wait a while and try to build up all our... Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to think of a good example, but we just, you know, gather money or gather people or whatever. Yeah. Then a lot of times after it actually comes to pass, yeah. 
we're thinking we did it. Yeah, it's very really, easy to think. Heads. Even if we're giving glory to God, there's kind of this piece of our heart that thinks, I sure am glad I worked hard on that because I really, right. I really kind of got it to, got it to work finally. It's um, just human nature to yeah. do that, and God knows we're that way. Yeah. So He wants to be clear here that it's Him doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thirty-two thousand men. That's too many, even though that's far less than far the enemy has. Yeah. We find out the but enemy actually... But he wants actually... it to be no chance that they can say that it was their power. Yes. In <clears throat> actually chapter 8, verse 10, we're going to find out the enemy has 135,000 men. 135. And so the 32,000 here, like Gina is saying, that's really far outnumbered by the 135. But, like I said, not impossible for a human to start thinking human thoughts after it's over and going, well, it was overwhelming odds, but we powered through and look what we did when we really got together, got unified and put our minds to it. You know, put put Israel first, whatever. Make them an excuse for how you did it. So God says, we're not going to allow there even to be a chance of that happening. So I need to call out your forces. So the first thing he does is tell everybody who's afraid to go home. Tells Gideon, you tell everybody who's afraid to go home. Which actually matches up really well with what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, about what you do when you're going out to battle. Tell everybody who's fearful, don't take fearful men into battle. You let the fearful people go home. So it matches up with that. This is just in line with what God has wanted Israel to do otherwise. 22,000 walk away. Now we're down to 10,000. Okay, now our odds are 13 to 1 <laughs> against us, God. That sounds pretty low, right? So we're good to go into battle now. Hopefully you feel like 10,000 is a good number. But God <laughs> is going to say, nope, too many. As a matter of fact, that's the very thing he says in verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll test them there. Uh, and of anyone I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Okay. So we take them all down to the water. There are certain guys who lap up water in their hands and keep their heads up. So they're lapping it in their hands like dogs. And then there are others who take their whole face and put it down to the stream while they drink. There's been a lot of speculation on why God was picking uh, the guys to go to battle who were lapping it into their hands, out of their hands, uh, as they scooped it up. Maybe because they were being more alert. Maybe because they were proving they were more like soldiers and being alert and having their water in their hands so they wouldn't have to put their head all the way down to the water. The fact is the text doesn't really say anything like that, does it? No. No. Uh, how, uh, what what seems to be the reasoning here? <laughs> seems to be because, I mean, maybe like was said in class this morning, it seems to be have a lot to do with the fact that that's the least amount of guys did that. Okay. God chose the thing that the least amount of guys were going to do because he wanted to use the least amount of guys to do it. Right. And so so when he, he chose the way that was going to get him down to the number that he thought this is a good, God's number to use, I'm going to use 300 guys to go against 
the 135,000. We'll see how that works. And so, so God chooses this way, um, no indicator as to whether or not one was better than the other for soldiers, just the fact that God is, is calling out numbers. So, by this point, Gideon's forces have been reduced from 32,000 to 300, over 99% in one day. They've, your numbers have gone down. And now God says you're ready to go into a battle against a, a, a vast army, crazy vast army of 135,000. So this, this is really, the odds are ridiculously against them. Yeah. Utterly Don't just read impossible. over this and think, da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Really think about that. That's incredible. Yeah. You would never do such a thing Yeah. with the world's wisdom. That right. doesn't make sense. Exactly right. So we come, we come to verse 9, and we see that that same night, uh, the Lord came to, Yahweh came to Gideon and says, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given them into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and God's going to show him something else that will give him, kind of help him overcome his fear. Now, I'm going to leave you all with that for this time. Uh, we are going to, you can move on to the next podcast as soon as you like, but you can kind of finish reading through this story and find out what Gideon finds out when he goes into camp if you like. But we'll be talking about that when we come back to this in our very next podcast. So just going to break it up because it's getting a little long and this way you'll have a little break here too. So. We're hoping y'all are enjoying this a lot. We really thank you for listening and getting, hopefully getting something out of it. Those who know um, know us can ask us in person, but even if you don't know us and you're listening to the podcast, please feel free to write any questions you have down. Uh, we will gladly answer them on the website, uh, whatever you want to do. But we're just glad to be able to uh, offer something and hope that it's feeding you because it certainly feeds us too to be deep in the Word. So love you all. God bless you all, and we look forward to talking to you more soon. Thanks.